I'd like to start with reading the Metta Sutta. And um, I often like to invite people to imagine that uh, uh, they are in India 2,500 years ago and uh, practicing very hard and uh, perhaps fears come up in their life and uh, their teacher at that time gives them this instruction as the uh, antidote to fear and really the key to liberation. The teacher says, This is what should be done by those who are skilled in goodness and who know the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. Wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease, whatever living beings there may be. Whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and those yet to be, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the sky and downwards to the depths, outward and unbounded, free from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. I really wanted to uh, read the Metta Sutta and talk about Metta and mindfulness today. And particularly when someone asked the question this morning, uh, having uh, been introduced to the formal compassion practice last night, how much compassion practice should I do and when should I do it for myself and when should I do it for somebody else? I wanted to begin by saying that this whole enterprise is compassion practice. Every bit of it is compassion practice. To sit down with the intention to pay attention, to be liberated from the habits that return us into suffering, that cause us to be reborn moment to moment into suffering, is a great compassionate act for yourself. To be free of enmity, to wish well to all beings, to be free of embitterment, to meet every moment without being angry at it, without resenting it, 
is a great act of compassion for yourself. I appreciate more and more as time goes by that I am the principal beneficiary of all of my metta, all of my compassion, all of the mudita, all of the equanimity practice. However many times I say for these beings or those beings or all beings or all realms, however many people I hold in my heart, I am the principal beneficiary of my metta practice, as you are of yours. And I also want to talk about the fact that I really think that metta and mindfulness are not separate practices. Of course they're separate in their form, that uh, they have a different technique, we give different instructions for each. But actually they're embedded in each. Sometimes even uh, you might think, well, they're separate practices, but they come to the same place, they come to wisdom and compassion. I think that, and I thought that for a long time, and that was how I understood them. More and more I understand them as being inherent in each other. I can't imagine being mindful without a warm attention. That's what Guy called it the other night, a warm attention, a friendly attitude towards this moment. I think it's inherent in the um, um, definition of mindfulness the non-reactive knowing of this moment. For me to be non-reactive, I need to greet it as a friend, without a story about it, without resentment about it, without trying to change it. And the same, I don't think you can do metta practice without being mindful. How would you know what to say? How would you remember where you were? How would you know how this felt in you? It takes an enormous amount of alert, warm attention to make the wishes, to hold them in your heart, to imagine the recipient of those wishes, to notice everything that stands in the way of the heart opening in friendship or compassion or empathic joy. It takes a tremendous amount of alertness and mindfulness. So I don't think they're so different. I think metta and mindfulness both in the end come out as wisdom and manifest as compassion. I think they both depend fundamentally on the development of wisdom and they rest on the fact that we have warm hearts, that we have natural good hearts, that we care. That's what human beings do. Compassion, by the way, in traditional text is described as the quivering of the heart in response to whatever it's meeting. I actually love that word, quivering. I think we have quivering hearts as part of the equipment of being human beings. The Buddha said uh, this birth as human beings was the most fortunate of births because it's the realm of the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 woes. And in the Buddhist cosmology, there are realms higher than the human realm where um, there are no difficulties, but neither any progress. Hearts are not transformed. There's nothing to work on. There's no um, material for the heart to hone itself on. And in lower realms, however dedicated and kind and friendly our animals might be, or animals might be in general, the sense that we have of them 
is that they are very much uh, driven by instinct. Even trained animals uh, behave when they're trained. But I wonder if they behave out of uh, empathic awareness of the fact that they would cause displeasure to another person. Maybe they behave out of empathic awareness, out of a sense for themselves that they they won't be uh, well treated or they won't be as highly praised. Um, I hope this is a good example of this. Uh, one of my daughters has um, keeps a, a breeder dog for the guide dogs, so uh, he lives with them. He's a house dog. He's two years old. He's exceptionally well trained. And when they, uh, in, in San Rafael, you may know, is the center for the guide dogs of the country. And when they uh, have an appropriate female for him to be with, he goes off for a few days, and then he comes home. And he's extremely well-behaved. He has all kinds of self-control. When the food put, gets put out, he waits until you can say, Desmond, eat, and then he eats. He's wonderful with everyone. And he knows all the rules, including the rule about not getting on the furniture. Except Liz tells me that in the night when she, uh, for instance, gets up and needs a glass of water and walks down the hall into the kitchen, that as she's walking down the hall into the kitchen, Desmond is emerging from the living room with his uh, ears hanging low and his tail wanging tentatively. And if she goes in and puts her hand on the sofa, the sofa is warm. And Desmond knows that he's not supposed to be there, and he stands and he wags. And so I think to myself, is Desmond worried that she'll be mad, or does Desmond realize that she's worked a great deal to be able to have a nice house and have this nice furniture? Is he thinking about her? Is he thinking about him? We have, in this realm, the capacity to know, I feel like doing this, but it would cause somebody else dismay, so I won't do it. We have the capacity to rest in a certain amount of equanimity and make wise judgments. I saw a movie yesterday afternoon. saw a video, and I watched it with my husband and uh, two of my grandchildren, who are 12 and 14. And the video was uh, Secondhand Lions. Have you seen Secondhand Lions? Anybody saw Secondhand Lions? It's quite lovely, actually. I hadn't heard of it before. And I don't want to tell you the whole plot because that's not right. You, you know, you... <laughs> but fundamentally, it's a story about two um, old men who uh, are presented with uh, their grandnephew. Their mother brings and leaves him off. And I, I realized afterwards that it parallels a Zen story that's a traditional Zen story been told for a long time about um, a Zen priest in a certain Japanese village and uh, the parents of a, a young girl in the village who come to him, knock on the door, present him with an infant and say, our daughter just had this baby. She said, you are the father. You take care of it and you need to take care of it. And he says, is that so? And takes the baby. According to that story, three years later, the in fact father of the child comes home, claims his fatherhood, marries the woman, and they go back and knock on the door, knock, knock, knock. 
and say, okay, it's not your baby. You have to give it back. And in the story, he says, is that so? And he does it. I actually had a lot of trouble with that story. Um, but I, I, I get the point of it. But, you know, I, I'm waiting for him to say, listen, this isn't fair. I have, a, you know, connected this child. I love him. I raised him as my own or her or whatever. And I've come to appreciate it not as that particular story about whether or not we connect those people we love. or I don't think it's a, a story about Japanese ethics or interpersonal relationships. I think it's a story about wisdom that at that point, faced with a fait accompli, you need to take the child, you take the child. You need to give up the child, you give up the child. I like to think that has nothing to do with how he felt. I like to think that it had to do with his seeing. This is the truth of what's called for now, so I'll do it. It doesn't say anything about how he felt about it. In some way, this uh, movie with uh, Robert Duvall and Michael Caine is strangely like that. The mother of uh, their grandnephew arrives with the boy and says, here, keep him. Later in the movie, she'll come and say, now I'm taking him. I won't tell you much more about the movie. Because uh, I, like, I, I really recommend it to you. But uh, at one point in the movie, quite near the end, there's a certain extremely poignant moment. And suddenly, so I said, here we are sitting in the darkened room, the four of us. And I say, oh, now I'm crying. And uh, my granddaughter said, well, <clears throat> I've been crying for five minutes. I'm crying all of my whole face, but I'm crying. So we look over and she said, oh, Grandpa's crying too. I said, Nathan, are you crying? He said, no, but that's because I saw it already. I cried already. <laughs> so, but, and the reason that I tell that to you is that I was so touched by the fact that here are the four of us, different ages, different... And... The four of us independent, the people cry. The thing about human beings is they cry and they laugh. A friend of mine said, years ago, I uh, took a class with her about 30 years ago and we became good friends. She was talking about the difference between uh, human animals and other animals. And she said, the thing about humans is they laugh and they cry and they bury their dead. And I understood that to mean we have this range of emotional response and we care. We care about every single life. You know, we don't, all of us, not everybody buries, but we do something about the fact that people die. We mark it in some way. Individual people, even though lives come and go, are important to us. We care about them. We carry on. And I think that the point of the Zen story is we carry on out of equanimity, out of the wisdom that comes out of equanimity. This is the way it is, and anything I do to fight with this will make it worse. I like to read this sutta very much. It's it's one of the things that sometimes we play the game about what piece of literature would you take on a desert island with you if you only had one. So this used to be one of the three things I would take. Probably now I wouldn't take it because I know it by heart. I could use one of my three on something else. But, <laughs> but I think that it's, a, and it's, it's an extraordinary teaching because um, it's thrilling. Anyway, it says this is what should be done. 
I think so much about uh, the unequivocal ring of that. It doesn't say maybe this would be a good thing or have an idea, you know, you might try it. It says this is what should be done. And I think particularly in these times where the world is so confused and there is so much difficulty in the whole world, I think about some great cosmic mommy voice saying, listen, this is what should be done. It comforts me. Um, you know, there's a, that uh, T-shirt that surfaces from time to time in catalogs uh, that uh, I suppose mothers of young children buy for themselves or their partners buy for them that is the response to why should I listen to you? And it says, because I'm the mommy, that's why. And later on in this particular sutta, it says, just as a mother would give her life to protect her one and only child, archetypally, we think about that maternal energy as being the energy that cares. And it certainly doesn't mean that men don't care and fathers don't care and that it's a gender-based, that caring is gender-based. But I think archetypally, we think of the bond between a parent and a mother and her child uh, as being the kind of bond that ought to be the most sustaining. This is what should be done by those who are skilled in goodness and who know the path of peace. I think a lot about what does it mean skilled in goodness. And I am taking it to mean in this case who know how to get back to the path of peace easily. I think I am diverted and I think we all are from the path of peace often. Things happen that annoy. I remember when I first began to practice one of the stories that I loved was a story that I heard from some of my teachers about a trip that they had made to uh, visit Mother Teresa's mission in Calcutta. And the story involved um, a camera crew with video equipment going to interview Mother Teresa and uh, arriving on the day and at the time that they had been uh, scheduled to arrive and being shown into Mother Teresa's study. And... uh, Apparently, the story goes that apparently, although the appointment had been made and they were there at the appointed time, she had not been reminded of it at the last moment or she had forgotten it. So imagine the scene where all of a sudden the doors open and in come 15 Westerners with video equipment rolling in and all their machinery. The person who told the story said Mother Teresa looked up and you could see... um, a moment of dismay and a moment of displeasure passed by her face. And then the end of the story is, and then she pulled it together and they did the interview. And I was just so pleased with that story. And when I've talked to other people about it afterwards, they were pleased with the story. And the thing that we said to each other is, Mother Teresa gets mad. Mother Teresa gets annoyed. It was just like such a piece of liberating news Everybody gets annoyed. If you have a nervous system, you get annoyed. You can be a saint and you get annoyed. Things aren't going your way. His Holiness the Dalai Lama, when people ask him, do you get angry ever? He laughs, his little laugh. He does, ha! (laughs) 
he has a very particular kind of a laugh. He says, of course. And everybody relaxes. They love that. And he said, things happen. They're not going the way you wanted them to. So anger arises. But it's not a problem. (laughs) It's the little laugh, I think, that makes it as charming as it is. But that actual piece of information, it's not a problem. Anger arises, is seen, and it doesn't go anywhere. You don't have to act on it. You don't have to make a story about it. You do what you need to do. You do what you can do. But the essential piece of the mind is not disturbed. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech. I think about that able and upright as uh, all of the sila practices we have, moral, morality practices. Not because they're nice things to do in a culture if the culture will live successfully together, but they're wise things to do so that one's own heart is at, is at ease. Straightforward and gentle in speech. I think about the straightforwardness as honesty and gentle in speech as not causing pain. We have to say things to people, but we don't have to startle them. There's going to be a line that's going to come about six lines from now that says, let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. Keep in mind that line about able and upright. We'll get up to it in a minute, but I think it attaches to that. I think the able and upright is an instruction about morality. And I think the line about that the wise would later reprove, and I was thinking about it this afternoon, I thought, well, who are the wise who will reprove and who will know? And it seemed to me that the most crucial element of that is that I will know when I've done something. I will reprove of myself when I haven't done something that I've been careful about and thoughtful about. Humble and not conceited. I thought about that. I thought that's really interesting. Um, That's asking us to be wise before we're wise. Because, in fact, um, conceited or humble are both based on views about who we are. And all of those views are just views. And, in fact, uh, one of the promises of practice is that, in the end, those views about ourselves that keep us locked into a certain image of ourselves, mostly an image that's the source of suffering, fall away and we realize that they're all constructed views. So in a sense this is saying don't have constructed views before you come to the end of the path. Start with the end of the path. Or maybe it's an echo of how the end of the path will be. In the end of the sutta it says by not holding to fixed views. Those are the views that we fix about ourselves. I'm not good enough. I'm great. Somebody else isn't good enough, or they're great. Contented and easily satisfied. You know what the line is that I thought about with that? Um, My friend Steve Cope, who was here teaching yoga in the beginning, so many of you got to meet him, um, says, in order for the mind to open, it has to feel safely held and soothed. And it's a, it's a phrase that I say to myself a lot, safely held and soothed. 
What can I do to make myself comfortable so that I can see clearly in this point? What soothes the mind? Unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways. That's like making wise choices. Do I have to do this? While you're here on retreat, I know that people are making their retreat experience more and more simple. Doing less, going less, making a less busy day. It's incredible. In the beginning, two or three days into the retreat, people would say things to me like, no idea how busy it is to just do a day here. And when you think about it, there's nothing. We just eat and sit and walk. But you have to take a shower and you have to figure out when you'll take the shower and then when you'll do the yogi job. And the day can just explode into just so many things to do. And there's actually nothing. I mean, compared to what you do in the outside world, when you think about it, in the rest of the world, out in the rest of your life, you are doing all of these things plus a whole job. I mean, this is, this is now the full-time job. Just easy. And doing less and less. And now people in interviews are saying, I'm doing less and less. I've decided to go on eight precepts, or I've decided not to go down in the afternoon, or I've decided not to go so far from the meditation hall. I go up and come down and go up and come down, and that's all. Peaceful and calm and wise and skillful. That's really interesting. There's wise and skillful before we're wise and skillful. Not proud and demanding in nature. But you know, one of the things that I've discovered about wise is there's a way in which sometimes, particularly when I teach day-longs down in the lower hall, and uh, people bring their lunch, and uh, I'm going to encourage them to eat their lunch quietly. Uh, and uh, thinking about what can I give as a practice to eat the lunch. Of course, you could always be mindful of the taste and the chewing and the eating, just as we do here, and frequently I talk about that. Or if we're practicing loving-kindness, you could continue the resolves and continue looking around and wishing well. Sometimes, when it's the right thing to do, I say to people, eat your lunch like a Buddha. And no one has ever yet said, how should I do that? You know, somehow we intuit what would be a wise way. What is wise? I think our heart knows what's wise, even before we think about it. So I don't mind that it says wise before maybe we feel wise. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise, again, would later reprove. I want to talk a little bit about the spontaneous moral inventory that happens with this practice. I reprove myself. I think you do too. When I do something that I think has caused some other person distress. Actually, it happens quite a lot on retreat that someone does some very small thing. They move somebody's sweater from one peg to another or they hurry through the line or they seem to be too pushy behind somebody and then they catch themselves doing it and feel terrible about it. You know, it's sort of a very, very small thing that the other person might or might not have noticed. But in this great vacuum of not much stimuli coming in, it's a tremendous possibility to really pick up, I just did something that met a need of mine. I needed this peg or... 
Uh, I was in a rush so I could wash my dishes. And I didn't think about how the other person might feel. And often, at that point, the mind uh, delivers up a whole um, list of all the other times in life when, when I wasn't attentive to other people's needs. It's amazing to me how that list, that inventory list, stays current and really full all the time. Uh, catches up with me, catches up, I think, with many of us, because people talk about it in interviews. In the beginning, I used to think, oh, I've made a mistake, I've done something wrong. Here I am sitting peaceful and lovely, mind quiet, wishing well, wishing myself well, wishing everyone well. Everything is fine. And all of a sudden, as if I have pushed a button on my computer, I'm getting a readout of all of the things that I've done, not only in the proximal past that caused different people discomfort, but maybe going way back. I remember the first time that happened, talking to my teacher about it, and said, I've made a mistake, something is going wrong. And she said, no, no, you haven't made a mistake, it's going right. This actually is the path of purification. And all of that stuff, if it happened yesterday or if it happened 45 years ago, is written in there. And it all comes up to be seen. And in some way, I think the mind is waiting and waiting to hear itself tell itself, I'm really sorry I did this. It's very good, actually, sometimes to tell it to a, a trusted friend or a spiritual buddy or your teacher. But even if you tell it to yourself, and say, I really, I feel really, really badly that I did this. Genuine remorse is quite freeing. Sometimes think of, well, can I make amends? Sometimes in our lives now, if we hurt somebody, we can always make amends. 30 years ago, um, 40 years ago, the amends making happens in the metta. May that person be well wherever they are. I wish they're well. I hope they're well. Actually, metta is really the the response to the heart wanting to make amends, wanting to make itself feel good. And it feels good when it makes amends because I think what we really want to do is live in concert with our own good heart. And when we do, we feel good about it. And when we don't, we feel bad about it. And when we are wishing well, we are being the kinds of people that we are naturally built to be. We feel like ourselves. We've come home. These four buildings out here, Metta, Karuna, uh, Mudita, Upeka, are uh, called the Brahma Viharas, which literally mean the um, abodes of the gods, the uh, divine abodes. Uh, my friend Sharon, uh, who uh, was my Metta teacher, said they, uh, that what she thinks it means is good places to live. Um, I actually think that they are the best places to live, that the refuge of one's own compassionate, loving, responsive, awake, caring heart is the safest place to live. There comes then a very important line in the sutta. After, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm, wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature, let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove, wishing in gladness and in safety. 
may all beings be at ease. That's such a crucial phrase in gladness and in safety. Really, all that we do here is to set up the mind and the heart so that they feel safe and glad, because then it will wish by itself. I think the safe is when we're not frightened. The mind is open. We can be attentive. We're not on guard. And the possibility of seeing in the fullest way, the possibility of access to the most wisdom is available. We see a whole picture, not the little picture of the most recent story. We see the offense, the way that this person offended me. But then we see the whole of the person and the other ways that they didn't offend us. Or they see the way in which this person has offended me. But they also it also sees at the same time that they couldn't have done other. That the karma of that moment, the karma of their conditioning, the way that they are, that it couldn't be other. That when the mind and the body are at ease and relaxed, wisdom really is self-relevatory. It'll say that at the end of the sutta. I think it depends on the feeling of safety. And the feeling of gladness, which I think really um, moves from equanimity and ease to actually the desire to really share this with other people out of compassion for other beings comes from the gladness involved. It is such a relief to find oneself in a place of ease. Just a tremendous relief to be able to wish well wholeheartedly. I actually think that to the degree that we are at all tied up in our own story, in fact, as long as there is an own story, then there's a peace that's not available of the heart for wishing. In the moment that the story of our own self drops away, there's nothing but well-wishing. It's a great relief to put down that burden of self. It's come up in many of the teachings that we've done in the afternoon. When I disappear... then things are easy. As soon as I appear, because the I that appears is really the reflection of a need, by definition, some neediness has arisen. The neediness has arisen is preoccupying a piece of my heart. How am I going to get this taken care of? It's not available for the whole well-wishing. It's a relief. not to feel needy. I think sometimes about the phrase, my cup runneth over. I think about how that really reflects the sense of, I don't need anything now. A friend of mine um, gave me a cartoon, uh, the Sylvia cartoon by Nicole Hollander. Um, And someone in it's a two uh, it's a it's a two uh, frame cartoon, and uh, someone in the next room who you don't see in the cartoon has saying, "Mom, going out? Can I get you anything?" And it's a, she is typing a list of uh, answers that you'd like to give to that question. And one of them is, 
Oh, things you would like to say sometime to somebody. That's it. We will presume the the the, the questioner off off. Uh, we don't see the questioner outside, but Sylvia is typing a list of uh, answers, phrases, things you'd like to say sometime. And one of them is, um, uh, yes, would you bring me a pair of uh, leather pants in a size two? (laughs) That's one answer that you do. Another one, second on the list, is, um, um, yes, it is unusual to uh, win an Olympic gold medal and the Nobel Peace Prize in the same year. (laughs) That's another thing that you'd like to say. But then the, the answer that really is the cartoon but uh, touches me a lot is, uh, no thanks, I have everything I need. So, no thanks, I have everything I need is a place that, we, that the mind is happy. It's a great relief not to need. Can, you can sometimes want. There's a difference between something looking good and you say, oh, that looks good, I'll have that. Oh, can't have it? Okay. It's not about forgetting that we're alive. It's not about having taste. It's not about not having a nervous system. It's about not being held captive by it. Wishing in gladness and safety may all beings be at ease, whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. I thought about that phrase this afternoon, and I thought about the ability to wish that is really the fulfillment of the first line of the metta chant, may I be free of enmity and danger. And it, when I first began to know that chant, I thought, I think erroneously, that it meant may I be free of enmity from outside and somebody else's enmity and the danger that if somebody else saw me as an enemy, I might be in danger. When I say it and when I think it, I think about how may I be free of enmity is may I be free of my own enmity because if I had it, I would be in danger of disturbing the peace of my own mind and heart, heart, that it's all an event that happens in here. May I be free of enmity and danger. Let none, and this is, this is interesting, these next four lines are going to be the whole instruction. Um, I thought for a while... Uh, how interesting, how odd. You know, the, the Mindfulness Sutta says, do this, do that, notice this, notice that, do this, do that. The Metta Sutta doesn't have a lot of instructions for how to do it. This practice of resolves that we are doing is a later um, creation. In the Metta Sutta, the Buddha says, just do it. There's something lovely about that. I, it has a feeling of the Nike ad, just do it, you know, that... Uh, it's so reassuring. Just do it. It lets me think that it's a doable thing. It's feasible. But here is the instruction for do it. Let none deceive another or despise anyone in any state. Of course, that's a very hard instruction. It doesn't say how to do that. It just says what to do. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. 
And I think to myself, there's such important statements that really is based on really the wisdom of knowing the truth of karma. Don't despise anyone in any state. You look at a person, look at a moment when you think about uh, what comes up in one's own mindfulness practice, and know that this person or this moment cannot be other. The whole of the weight of karma forever and ever in all directions as it has to do with this person or this moment in your own experience cannot makes it so that this moment is exactly what it is. To despise someone, to put them out of your heart, to despise this moment, to be embittered with it, is to imagine that it could have been otherwise, which is not to see clearly the truth of karma. This moment cannot be otherwise. The next moment can be otherwise. The literal meaning of karma is action. Everything is what it is because of everything that's ever happened. And how I act in this moment, both in my heart and in the world, is going to make a difference in the next moment. It really, this is, this is the understanding that really gives me some uh, strength in these days of difficulty in the world, where I think to myself, the world is in such a terrible difficulty with wars and famines and uh, half the world without a place to, uh, uh, more than half the world without adequate shelter, half the world going to sleep hungry, wars on all the continents. How is this going to change? If there are people or nations or groups or religions that become the enemies, then we will have more enemy, enmity. If I remember that the fundamental causes of all the suffering are greed, hatred, and delusion, and that this moment in the world's history is not a mistake, it's a lawful expression of the amount of greed, hatred, and delusion there are in the world. But if it is lawful, then it can change. Then the world can change. Then people can change. Individual people can change, which is the only way, I think, that the world will change. But it can happen. It got this way because of individual hearts. And the fact that it's not a caprice, it is lawful, makes it possible to think that the world might change. Individual hearts of peace might make a world of peace. Thinking, let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another, is to really understand the pain of enmity. When I am holding someone in a place of not liking them, when I'm mad at them, when they are my enemy, when I cannot forgive them, I am in pain. I think that you know that from your practice. The mind contracts around it. It has to stay very busy telling myself the story of what they did wrong and how right I am or how they wronged me. There's a lot of pain in the presence of enmity. There's a wisdom in seeing that. The references of the Buddha teaching about vowing to end ill will, give up ill will no matter what anybody does to you. If ill will arises in you, you are not a true disciple of mine. 
you think, wow. I think ill will arises just as a natural event in a living being. But it doesn't have to have a home. I actually think again about compassion practice for myself. The moment I realize I'm in pain is the beginning of my liberation from that pain. That I, my, my most frequent rescue from any afflictive mind state is the realization that no matter what the name of the afflicted mind state is, anger or lust or boredom or restlessness or doubt, whatever the afflicted mind state, if I really were to name closely what's happening, I would say, I'm in pain. They're all painful. The recognition I'm in pain calls up my own natural compassionate heart, as it will with you. So it's actually quite, it goes like this. Here's a story, here's the mind and body contracted, and here is the moment of mindfulness that stops the story that says, I'm in pain. This is painful. It is unpleasant. I don't like it. I wish it were different. At that point, I often say a wisdom statement to myself that balances the fact that I've been startled by my pain. The wisdom statement that I say to myself is everything that arises passes away. It's very comforting to me. It's one of those things that I just know is true. Everything that arises passes away. And I feel in that moment a little bit balanced in my mind. And then I say, may my pain pass away. May it pass soon. May I be peaceful. May I be happy. May I be free of suffering. May I feel protected and safe. Whatever I'm going to say for myself. But it really works for me not to leap over into saying those phrases, but to name every moment of the experience that leads me naturally through my own good heart to the saying of these phrases. I'm in pain. It's unpleasant. I wish it weren't so. Everything that arises passes away. May this pass soon. May I be peaceful. I also think that that particular line about let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another carries with it the wisdom of knowing that enmity never ends with enmity. That meeting something, getting even doesn't work. There is no even. That even comes back, that even is a non-existent thing. I'll just do this. I'll get it out of my system and then we'll all be okay. But we won't. Then they'll, they'll get it out of their system and then we'll get it out of our system. There's a wonderful description in Huckleberry Finn, Tom Sawyer, where he says, Huck, what's a feud? And, and Huckleberry Finn tells him, well, it's once upon a time someone did something bad to a relative of yours and then your family got mad and did something bad to a relative of theirs and then that family got mad and came back and did something to your family and then your family remembered and went back and did something bad to that family. So by and by, nobody remembers what the original bad thing was but they remember that there's a feud. I think about the whole world with feuds based on who knows what as the beginning bad thing. And what will it take, I think to myself, for everybody to say, somehow we forgot that we are all human beings and that we all want to go home in the same way to families that will meet us for dinner. We want to sit down in peace and wake up in peace and 
have a meal together and sing happy birthday and marry people and bury people and birth babies. We don't want a whole lot. We don't need a whole lot in order to be happy. We have to feel safe in a world where we've forgotten a lot that that's a possibility. Just as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world and spreading upwards to the sky and downwards to the depth, outward and unbounded. It's a wonderful vision, isn't it? Spreading all that love in all that direction. And sometimes when people do um, traditional metta practice, they do really designated sending of metta in all of the directions. It's a lovely discipline for the mind. And sometimes it, it seems in the description of it like sending metta to all the beings in the East or all the beings in the West. Sounds like metta is making a phone call or sending an email and that actually it's only going to the beings in the East or the West, like you could actually direct it out of you in a particular way. Not everybody gets every email that I send, only if I push send all. Actually, the, the practice of wishing well in this particular way goes in all directions, regardless of who is the presumed or the named recipient. And again, I always feel like I am the biggest recipient of it because I'm sitting right in the middle of it. Whatever is being generated, I am in the middle of it. If I am am thinking over some grievance, I am in the middle of that. If I am generating goodwill, I'm in the middle of that. Freed from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down. I love that four postures, standing, walking, seated, lying down. Because I think that means all the time. If you think about it, those are the only four postures we're ever in. You know, it says those same postures in the Mindfulness Sutta. I think it's a poetic way of saying all the time. Free from drowsiness means awake, alert. I think that's the instruction that says it's all mindfulness practice. Free from drowsiness, knowing what's happening. This is said to be the sublime abiding. A wonderful place to live. By not holding to fixed views, the pure one, having clarity of vision, being freed of sense desires. I take that to mean not being confused by sense desires, not being victimized by them. I don't know that sense desires don't arise in bodies for as long as they're viable. I think freed from them means free from the imperative of them. I feel like doing this, but this wouldn't be a wise or a skillful time to. Is not born again into this world. I don't know about successive rebirths by personal experience. Sometimes it seems quite imaginable to me, sometimes not so imaginable. But I really relate a lot to the idea of reborn into suffering in this life, over and over again. Every time my heart is contracted, my mind is closed, and I I am less than available with my natural good heart. 
reborn into some element of suffering. And each moment that I'm able to see my way out of that, which often is just seeing the pain of it and the compassionate response to it, I am out of that suffering state. I have revived. I actually think very much of it as being a question of life and death. The wonderful article in the new Tricycle magazine that just came out um, by Jack Engler, talking, honoring two of his teachers, uh, honoring uh, Deepa Ma, talking about his teacher Manindra, two teachers who are no longer alive, but talking about both of them as having very spacious hearts, able to be individually attentive to each person that they met, without judgment. And then he says, the energies that keep us alive are joy, generosity, compassion, curiosity, truthfulness, serenity, equanimity, wakefulness, impeccability. All of those are relational energies. They're things that connect us to the world outside of us. I actually think that living in one's own benevolent heart really is a place where we connect to the heart of the whole world. I think that's what we're doing here. I thought about... I wasn't going to tell you about how the movie ends because take something out of you but I, I, or take something out of the movie but um, I will anyway tell you one <laughs> teeny line I want to tell you what was my favorite line in the whole movie it's a great movie I think the more I think about it the more I that desire arises I want to go back to the video store get it again see it again that's the way the mind works something is pleasant it wants more of it But it does happen that this young boy stays with these old men who are unwaveringly wise and kind and without sentiment, not not maudlin, not um, just wise. They accept him into their house and uh, when his mother comes and takes him away... um, they let him go. And um, it's a very tense part of the movie. Um, and I was all upset while I was watching it. This was already after the bad part happened with the crying. So I said, I don't think I can watch anymore. And Nathan said, it's all right, it will come out okay. So in fact, in the end, this boy gets to go back to his... Uh, great uncles. But the line that they greet him with as he comes down the road and uh, they stand on the porch waiting for him uh, is really the line that I think has to do um, with the whole of practice, the intention of practice. I say it to myself when I'm sitting a fair amount, when I've been confused and upset and finally can somehow bring myself to contact this moment with some benevolence. And what they say to him is, welcome home. 
So I don't actually make such a big difference between mindfulness and metta practice. I think they are all part of the ways in which we welcome ourselves to our true home. So try it for yourself when you sit. Say to yourself, welcome home. We can sit for a minute now. Welcome home. Thank you. This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on February 16, 2004. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.